Hello and welcome to episode three of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. Yes, it's a Sunday. It's very hot. It's actually rather uncomfortable, just to add to our sort of global warming rant that we had last week. But how are you doing, Kartik? I'm a bit chilly, I can't lie, but <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I don't agree with you. But uh, anyway, yeah, I'm doing well. Um, even though I don't have a job, I've made myself surprisingly busy with the podcasts and sort of other projects that I'm doing. Mm. So I'm quite flat out, but um, yeah, I'm good. How yeah. are you? Yes, I'm okay. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm off to. I'm off to Corfu uh, on next Ooh. weekend. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, mm. But it's just been quite difficult trying to get everything together for that, as it is uh, the weekend before uh, you go on holiday when it's your last chance to kind of quite get all the things that you need to. But yes, it is very exciting. Um, but yeah, but I could do my first ever on location podcast, which could be quite. Cool, <laughs> we, need to, we need to discuss that. Kartik, it is Sunday. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm not drinking alcohol because it's a Sunday. It's a religious day for me. Um, I'm a Hindu, so I, I don't. It's not all Hindus. It's just for me. I don't drink alcohol on Sundays. Um, but yeah, what are you drinking today? So I'm having a cup of coffee. Yeah, I will make it known that even though Karthik doesn't drink on a Sunday, he makes most of drinking every other day very. No, <laughs> um, so I'm drinking. This lovely aged red wine from oh, Nest called The Tempest. And well, this one kind of reminds me of a warm summer's day in the Hertfordshire countryside. You did say you were going to say something very bourgeois. It, it, to, be, <laughs> to be honest, yeah. And I have no regrets. I think it's lovely. It's jammy. And it reminds me of a nice Shiraz. So Okay. Uh, moving on me. swiftly. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to move on to our current affairs section. Uh, we've got a lot to get through today. So let's just get on with it. Um, first of all. Uh, I think we might have had something to do with this. I hope we did. Mm. Um, Andrew Tate is banned from Facebook and Instagram. What Woo! do you think about that? Oh, thank God. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we said everything we needed to say about um, Andrew Tate, although we did get requests to do a whole podcast on Andrew Tate, and we're currently weighing up whether we want to kind of give him that exposure. But um, I don't want to give him that gratification. We might include it in on like maybe yeah. the presence of social media and politics. Most yeah, I, I think we should, yeah, we should, we should definitely do an episode on social media. But anyway, I think this might make him more formidable potentially, because if you look at the way his sort of videos are circulated, heinous videos are circulated on TikTok, they're entirely fan accounts. He doesn't actually own one. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it could make him worse. I hope it doesn't. Uh, on but... TikTok, doesn't he have a, his own account? No, he doesn't. This is entirely sh it's shared by a fan base. Um, no, I that... thought I saw a verified one because I'm pretty sure I heard the, the CEO nope. of Facebook say something nope. about he hopes that TikTok follows suit or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I have noticed like his videos have gone down on my For You page, but I think that's just because I always say don't want to see this stuff. But uh, yeah. it was also claiming that he was joking and playing a comedic character, which I think we all sort of knew. But the impacts of this jokey and comedic character have been horrific because a lot of people our age and younger and some even older have taken this as gospel and treat this man as if he's a god um so we're just going to reiterate what we said last week of please have a conversation with your friends to be honest i don't buy it i don't buy this whole it's just a character because i've seen videos of him literally like wanting to beat a woman and her being yeah. very uncomfortable with it so i don't buy it and he and he was an absolute dick on uh uh what was it? big brother so 
yeah i i don't buy yeah. it whatsoever but anyway let's move on to any let's move on man. let's move on <laughs> so the next one donald trump and the raid in mar-a-lago so we discussed this last week this is quite it's gotten a little bit bigger now um we've Ooh. well the news outlets have found out that search in his florida residence was carried out under the espionage act which in my opinion makes it a much much bigger deal than it already definitely. was definitely uh the espionage act uh if for our listeners who don't know what it was uh what it is um is historically it was used to quell dissent against the us's support for world war one uh sort of prohibiting or obtaining documents about national defense and especially if it's at the expense of the us or for the benefit of a foreign nation um but in terms of contemporary politics and contemporary legal jargon if you like there is no evidence at the moment that he was planning to release the material but the important caveat 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 in this is that the espionage act includes a gross negligence standard so the prosecutor does not have to prove criminal intent if he's mm. obtained it in a negligent manner uh we don't know exactly how he how he got these materials whether he took it on the way and now it's just Took it on the way out from the White House and I was just sitting in a box in Florida. Uh, if they are really, really sensitive classified documents that he's got, then he could still be prosecuted. But I think prosecutors and the government is just sort of trying to get the get the documents back. Um, and that's it. I don't exactly know mm. how the investigation is going to unfold. It's still a developing story. But the political impact of this has been massive. Um, for most politicians or political characters this would mean political ob oblivion i mean you'd be sent to the back benches if you like uh but trump being trump has taken this as a political opportunity and it's played out really really well for him uh because previously the the republican party was sort of willing to move on from trump but now they've entirely banded behind him and his oh. pack contributions which were previously three hundred thousand dollars per week are now a million dollars per week three hundred thousand mm. itself is massive but a million per week is so big like, you can't even fathom it um mm. but effectively this is populism embodied you know this is what happens for figures like this yeah and i had a i had i once wrote a um a paper on uh, on populism and my my thesis was that populism is is most effective on the back end of a state of crisis or a state of disassociation mm -hmm. from the yeah very reactionary or a sense of disassociation from the top to the bottom and mm -hmm. so having this kind of um like watchman state Mm -hmm. that the republican party and trump will it's try. gonna it's, it's gonna it's, yeah it's gonna it, sort of ingrain the anti-establishmentarian yeah, ide yeah ideas of populism i see what you mean it's very interesting yeah um, uh, massively i i think that's what's hilarious is just this idea that like he could have had nuclear codes just like under some magazines on his yes. coffee table or something yeah. i mean that's the most trump thing i think i've ever heard <laughs> to be we probably shouldn't speculate yeah. what was in the documents but if it's being investigated under the espionage act then it could be significant but anyway let's move yeah. on cool rishi behind on the polls uh i mean yeah he's behind in the polls and everyone and all the news outlets have been talking about it and saying to him like how how do you beat uh liz trust when it seems like she's so 
far ahead. I mean, so she's currently 32 points ahead. I just want mm-hmm. to put something out there that I don't think it's as easy as just saying, oh, yeah, she, the polls are saying she's above. Let's go. Because it's incredibly difficult to try and poll such a small percentage of people. Mm-hmm. Can't talk yeah. about how, you know, such a small percentage of people are choosing the prime minister. And that's really not a bad thing. Uh, sorry, that really is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it also makes it incredibly difficult to poll because you've got to find people who are willing to partake in this poll. So say only... 2% of people out of that 5% of the entire population are willing to actually partake in the poll. You're looking at maybe a hundred people, for example, which is nothing to go on. Yeah. See what I mean? So yeah, yeah it's hard, but uh, we will find out five days after episode four goes out. So this is episode three. Um, yep. 5th of September. Got, yep. So you've got a week and a bit to wait. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll do something on it at the time and we'll try and, make get it out as quick as possible our sort of mm-hmm. responses to it and stuff um but yeah anyway, it has gone on very long yes it has it gone on way yeah. too long. ridiculously long I, I can't remember one that's gone on for this long i don't even Neither think can I. elected boris went on for this long and i know the timing is a bit like oh it's over the summer holidays and stuff and you know it's it's Hang, wasn't, wasn't boris johnson elected over the summer holidays uh oh you might mm, i think i'm right i think you might be right but what i think happened was was he left he announced his plan to leave Mm -hmm. um at the end or sorry she Theresa man that's a plan to leave at the end of or just before recess but they said that the the campaign like all of the election would start after I'm pretty sure. I might be it's, wrong. It's, it's sure too strange. That. Basically, it's gone on too long, and they should have decided a prime minister much, much faster, especially yep. when the country's in crisis. We've got a prime minister that's in Greece, uh, unfortunately, absent, yeah. unfortunately taking his shirt off, and we've got <laughs> Nadim Zahawi, who, you know, I, I don't know where he is during a cost of living crisis. He's playing basketball with teenagers. That's why some, I <laughs> Someone has produced a plan uh, for the energy crisis, and that's Keir Starmer. And he's received a lot of flack for this. So this is this is our third story on current affairs. It's Keir Starmer has actually come up with a plan to deal with rising energy costs. He wants to prevent the energy price cap from rising to £3,600 in October, and he wants to keep it just under £2,000. Now, we don't know at the moment whether the Conservative or Labour plan is better. I think when we look at when we look at the economy as a whole picture, we're going to have to analyse it from that perspective. But at this point, what I want to address is the absolutely shoddy, shitty journalism from Ooh. Sky News. Um, James, you saw, you, you saw that video. What do you think about it? Yeah, so for our listeners who didn't know, effectively what the Sky journalist said in an interview with Keir Starmer was... Uh, was trying to imply that because, well, first of all, he asked Keir Starmer, how much do you earn? And Keir Starmer was very honest and said, as leader of the opposition and MP, I earn combined a sum of £130,000 a year. Mm. And the the journalist said, oh, yeah, well, surely you can afford that. And surely people above the kind of uh, the the £80,000 mark uh, can earn that. I don't know where Mm -hmm. this £80,000 grants come from. Anyway, um, and... He basically tried to imply, well, why should you be benefiting from it as well? Surely the mm-hmm. most vulnerable in society. But I think you said this to me, and I totally agree with you. If Starmer went for a more, like, sort of, let's provide for the vulnerable rather than everybody, mm-hmm. 
he, he would have just, been criticised for, for, yeah. for that. So I think it's a lose-lose situation. But I think how he handled himself in the interview was very well. And actually, he came out of it making the journalist look, look a bit silly. Bad. Yeah. And that's why yeah. we're having this conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. I think it's, it's a strange one because the journalist should have at least acknowledged that no one should have to pay. Well, obviously, there's a lot of nuance to how much energy bills should be, but... Mm -hmm. For an average energy bill to be three, four thousand pounds is ridiculously high. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't acknowledge that. He did not acknowledge that. But anyway, I'm just happy that Labour has actually produced a plan. And since mm -hmm. then, a series of plans on different policies have come out. And I'm very happy with it. Um, just before we go off on that, I do. A lot of people have a go at Labour for not mm -hmm. having policy. And the simple matter of the fact is, is that we're nowhere near. Man, uh, like manifesto writing times yeah. so you know he's trying to do a con carefully considered sort of approach to policy and in a way as much as i i do want to hear policy from him i completely understand his reluctancy to go hard with policy because if he gets it wrong then it's just going to give him more problems potentially so mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent we're, we're coming up to the Labour Party yeah. conference soon, so that's where we'll get a lot of lot more policies that we can pick apart on the podcast. Yeah. But our final story um, is is quite a is a very very interesting one because it's produced a lot of debates worldwide. Mm -hmm. It's reignited some debates worldwide, and and it's the attack on Salman Rushdie. Now, Salman Rushdie was giving a lecture in New York. He was stabbed ten times, and. For the benefit of our listeners who don't know who Salman Rushdie is, he's a writer. He's an Indian-born British writer who wrote a book called The Satanic Verse. He's, he's also written other books. The Midnight Children is a terrific book. Um, but he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. And whilst I'm aware what was controversial in The Satanic Verses, I'm not going to reference it here, but it did, did cause severe offence to Muslims. Hmm. And some Muslims believe that they have the right to protect their prophet and that anyone who just disrespects their prophet should be punished. Yeah, it's it's produced debates on free speech, and I think it's important to outline the definition of free speech, or because it's one of our most important rights, but it's one of the most ill-defined ones. Mm. So I'm going to outline my perspective on free speech, and James, you can disagree with it if you'd like. Whilst free speech is important, it can't constitute hate speech or any incitement. However, protecting abstract concepts, religious beliefs, or other beliefs uh, is not grounds for restricting freedom of speech. So my personal perspective on the whole Salman Rushdie satanic verses issue is that sort of verse or that book might maybe should not have never have been published because of how much offence it causes. But it's not right to stab him ten times for it. Uh, yeah, what's your perspective on free speech and the stabbings? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with you, to be honest. It's a really, really hard one because it's such a thin line between free speech and hate speech. Mm. Um, and so it's a really difficult one to judge. I think that the, the other fact that the other kind of dimension to this is that it's not just free speech, but it's published free speech as well. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a difference if I say to you something which I believe, which which could potentially be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sort of offensive to to the Muslim community and uh, mm -hmm. draw towards their profit. But there's a different dimension if I decide to publish it. 
because mm-hmm. then it's public. And I think what the U- the UK kind of has is a very kind of regulated sort of concept of, well, look, if you put it on public, mm-hmm. you know, then you're kind of, you're open to all sorts of stuff that mm-hmm. could happen. So you have to kind of like self-assess whether that's going to be beneficial for you. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that, i.e. Salman Rushdie should kind of take responsibility for his own stabbing. I agree mm-hmm. with you that there should be political vi- political violence on the grounds of religious beliefs, ideological be- beliefs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, diff- it's a difficult one. And I don't, I f- it warrants its own entire podcast, to be honest. It really the- does. It's really, really tough on, to yeah. discuss it in two or three minutes. But what I what I want to nicely segue onto our main topic through uh, Sam Rushdie is the Satanic Verses is an incredibly good book and very interesting uh, on the status and lives of immigrants in Britain. And you know our topic today is empire, uh, primarily because last week uh, or yeah last week for for, our, for the benefit of our listeners uh, was the seventy fifth anniversary of Indian and Pakistani independence so yeah let's let's get on to that final topic let's get on to our final topic which i did tease on uh tease on twitter or just try to get people discussing it but yeah let's talk about imperialism number one because 75 years ago it was the independence uh, of india and pakistan but the narrative amongst the south asian immigrant community has completely shifted previously indians and pakistanis would be celebrating their independence but now the narrative has shifted to them outlining the fact that India and Pakistan was divided 75 years ago. Mm. And finally, in my opinion, as someone who takes pride in their own country and loves studying imperial history, no matter how horrific it can be, um, partition is finally being discussed. And I'm really, really happy about that, about the fact, about that fact because my personal history is rooted in the partition. Now, my family, I was born in India. My family is Hindu, but we were born on the Pakistan. Well, my ancestors come from the Pakistani side, if you like, of undivided India. And we had to migrate over through all the violence, through all the, the migration, by the way, being the largest forced migration in the history of the world. And it's finally being discussed in the 21st century. So that's one thing that I'm really happy about. And, you know, the reason that it's finally being discussed is because these immigrants that have come from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, aren't just going to root themselves into British society. They're rooting themselves into a global society because we live in a much more interconnected world. So traditional religious and ethnic borders are being redefined, especially amongst the youth. So this is something I'm really excited about. And yeah, what do you think, James? What do you think you're from your reading this week um what's your perspective yeah just just for context kartik set uh, set me a lot of stuff to read uh this week i kind of felt like he was my like historical seminar (laughs) tutor um over the summer despite it being summer and me not at university i feel like as if i've never left uh but yes uh no i think i think what you've said about the importance of this uh this kind of topic being brought back into the light and that kind of like that dichotomy between whether or not partition was an, an independence or or a split between mm-hmm. sort of 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 a community and i know that I, I was reading some of the the work you've done and listening mm-hmm. to 
listening to your thoughts on the idea of how uh, imperialism is actually a um, uh, a very divisive construct in terms of in, in terms of community and ethnicity, um, mm-hmm. and that's and that's a really interesting way uh, to mm-hmm. go about it. But to be honest, I'm just I'm just very happy that it's been talked about and I know we're going to get on to the idea of sort of education and mm-hmm. the idea of how much it's uh, how, how much it's being taught but certainly it's, it's it's definitely something that's on the table I can mm-hmm. see it on the table um politically uh legislatively when talking about um when talking about things like equality um acts and amendments and immigration even um immigration i know that in one part of uh, one of your papers you started talking about how we're seeing a, a big prevalence in in uh, mainstream politics of mm-hmm. um of uh politicians from immigrant based families which is obviously mm-hmm. a brilliant thing it creates a more diverse uh, environment whether or not you agree not with as, certain- it's not as brilliant as you think it is but we'll come on to that what i want to outline for then if other listeners which we'll come on to in the education po- point as you said is because it's not sure, I want to sort of give you a brief whistle-stop history tour of the British Empire. So, mm. is that okay with you, James? Am, am I happy to give a Absolutely. brief history tour? Right. So, the British Empire, at a point, was the largest empire in the world. So, at one point, they held 23 to 24% of the world's land under their empire. So, if you want to contextualize that, that is approximately 94% of the moon's surface. That is shocking. 94% of the moon's surface was, was held under British control, under one tiny island. Yeah. But British colonial impacts can still be seen globally in judicial systems, education, and borders. Uh, but what everyone loves to talk about is the railways uh, in India, uh, which is also a uh, British impact. But even the, na- the world nature of world wars can be prescribed to imperial history. It can be prescribed to the fact that empires were competing with each other for territory. And Hitler famously said, actually, that uh, we should learn something from the British when it comes to how much land they acquire. That's good, so isn't it? <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's, not the, it's not the nicest admirer for <laughs> British history. Uh, but I also want to outline the fact that decolonization, which is something Britain tends to be very proud of, um, and abolishment of slavery, again, something that Britain seems to consider itself to be world-beating. Um, it wasn't ended due to the good nature of the British. Although there were dissenting voices throughout Britain, the top of the establishment opposed decolonization. And I'm mm. talking about Britain's most beloved uh, Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. Um, he severely opposed decolonization. Um, and I personally attribute the ending of the British Empire to US pressure on the British to rid itself of its imperial holdings because of a deal for the US to enter the war effort in World War II. So I don't want this to be a historical discussion completely, but that basically gives you an idea of what the British Empire was. Um, It was horrific. Many people died. Some good things came out of it as well. Um, But yeah, what do you think of the history tour? Yeah, so... Yeah, and I think it's very beneficial for you to say that because what, as I was listening to you, you kind of talked about the the prevalent our, our kind of history of 
having empire because i think and this is where the kind of the nostalgia or, or rather the kind of like post-colonial discussions come in mm-hmm. because what the what the debate is is like uh, w- what is the point of this sort of of this discussion are we are we criticizing britain's you know for britain creating this empire at the time or are we critiquing how britain has responded to the end and i'm doing sort of like quote uh, like quote unquote end of its imperialism mm-hmm. because like the past is the part you know like for instance we don't say to germany or at least, you know, in mainstream, I know some people still like to kind of bring it up. We still, we we don't keep saying to Germany, "Oh yeah, but you know, you had Hitler," sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it, I think it is the same that, you know, it's just there. We do have a past, and whether we like it or not, our past might not be brilliant. But, you know, our past is is very brutal. Our past is very callous. Mm-hmm. And that is our past, and we can dwell the on the thing past. Is, I, can, can I interrupt you briefly? You admit, yeah, yeah, yeah. you admit that Britain's past was brutal. Oh and yeah, hundred percent. Britain itself doesn't admit that. Our history books don't admit that. Yeah, um, and this, so, and this, but this is this is the problem: is that because what there's two issues here, and one of which is the fact that we as a country decided to launch an imperial career back in the in the 1800s and, and further field and whatever mm-hmm. but in my opinion the bigger issue is because the past is the past the bigger issue is the fact that currently our views are still even negligent or skewed in order to try and avoid that conversation of discussing how callous 100%. our past was 100 michael bowes Michael Gove, when he became Education Secretary, wanted British history books to represent how great the British Empire was. I mean, that's just shocking to me. Yeah, it's just shocking. It's like you, so, I, I think I think most Commonwealth states have given up on the idea of reparations. Uh, mm. You know, famously, the Covenor Diamond debate was massive in the early twenty first century, where people really Indians particularly wanted the Covenor Diamond back. That is part of the crown jewels. That side of the debate was given up. No one wants reparations. I think from an immigrant perspective, which is the only thing I can really offer to this discussion, um, we just want our history acknowledged and learned and to be accepted. Whereas in a lot of history books, it's not. In In some history books, it's not even discussed. Now, I accept that this is a very, very, very contentious topic. And imperial historians have constantly debated about the origins of empire, and even the end of the empire. Some people still debate whether the empire has ended because we still have mm-hmm. um, some British overseas territories, the Falklands being yeah. one. Um, mm. so, so some people think it ended in 1947. Some people think it ended in 1997 when Hong Kong was given back to the Chinese. Uh, it, yeah, when Hong Kong was given back to the Chinese. And some people think it's still gone going. So it's so contentious. No one really knows how it's done, but the discussion is not even happening. And that's what's shocking to me. And I think that neatly segues us onto our education point. Um, you briefly wrap on the education side of things, James. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so throughout my entire, um, throughout my entire uh, politics degree, one big p- 
point of empire is the 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 lack of um the, the lack of the negative side of empire mm-hmm. within education and that that sort of starting from a primary education position i.e. Mm-hmm. very uh, very young now obviously you know we're not going to be telling you know five year olds that you know soldiers went into into india and raped communities and stuff because you know why would you tell any five year old that but mm-hmm. you know there has there has to be a balance like we can't be sort of sort of doing this glory to the british empire because it creates a false narrative it creates a negligent narrative as i already yeah. said um but we're also seeing it with you know with secondary school education um mm-hmm. me and you have spoken very avidly about the fact that you know during secondary school education i mean i know certainly when i did a very brief bit about empire in i think like maybe year nine or something like that the, mm-hmm. the name of the topic was the, the the famous quote of the sun never sets on the british empire and it's that yeah. whole kind of glory British Empire narrative, mm-hmm. and look, I think you can put, you can pull apart you can pull apart what you want from Empire. You can pull apart you know you know benefits to Empire. You can pull apart you know negatives to Empire. But there has to be it has to be in balance because mm-hmm. a lot of people suffered from from Empire. And yeah. if you do find a positive from Empire, brilliant, great. Okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about it. But you can't just completely ignore the fact that as a country we ruled a a world which was which was characterized by slavery characterized mm-hmm. from pillaging characterized but you, know, but you know what the back up back sort of the point back to you is to be from someone who's pro empire if you like they would say well we led the charge when it comes to abolition but that's Fine, discussing the positives is a good thing, but that needs to be with an open discussion of the negatives of empire. Because you can easily say, "Oh, yay, we abolished the uh, we abolished slavery," but Britain at a point was the largest proponent of slavery. Just because we abolished it doesn't mean we can completely forget the. <laughs> you, do, you, do you get what do, I mean? Do you know what that? Do you know what that? Funny enough, and I literally just thought of that. It reminds me of how recently the Conservatives have basically said, "Oh yeah, we're getting twenty thousand policemen on the street," and then I think it was Andrew Neil that said, "Yeah, but you axed twenty one thousand jobs, so you're still exactly. in the minus one thousand." Exactly. It's that, exactly. It's, like yeah, that. it's that kind of yeah. It's 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 very weird, and I, I feel like. One of the big issues is that as a country, we have this, we, we don't like to talk about things that cause an uncomfortable topic. Mm. And especially one that relates to us. Like there have been some mm. countries who've been very open about speaking Germany. about their history. Yeah, Germany, for instance. And they've been very open to start talking about the idea of reparations. And that's a kind of topic in its own self, because, you know, some people believe reparative measures are are just a very, um, a very sort of patronising way of going about trying to say sorry. Basically, mm-hmm. here's loads of cash. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. But they've been very open about talking about their past. And they mm-hmm. teach, they teach about, for instance, Nazi Germany in their mm-hmm. curriculum. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it because there is a very, uh, there's a very interesting quote that's gone. It's uh, arguably the most significant throughout. element of the history, but go on. Please. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very interesting quote that has carried on with me throughout my life. And I, I, I learned about this quote right in primary school. And funny enough, I, I don't know where it came from, but my, my head teacher of my primary school, 
he always said to us in assemblies, I remember this vividly, he said, why do we learn about history? And he'd ask people and they would say, oh, because it's fun and all that sort of, you know, crappy mm -hmm. primary school stuff. <laughs> and then he would say, he would say, he said, he asked this question to someone in the early, like, 2000s. And he said, this, this child came up with the best answer ever. And mm -hmm. it was, so we cannot repeat the mistakes of the past. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, so he said that that was, <laughs> that was from like a primary school kid. And that was that's, very, that's, that's very interesting yeah. to hear now. Yeah. And unfortunately not everybody is like that. Yeah. And that's something that we have to, we have to challenge the notion mm -hmm. that not everybody is like that. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, we do yeah. have to talk about our past and not be afraid yeah. of talking about our past as well. Yeah. No, it's it's I completely agree. You know, there are important events that need to be discussed to contextualize the world we live in. That's just the way it goes. Um, you know, the history of the British Empire can help us answer so many questions like, you know, why is there conflict between India and Pakistan? Why is Kashmir disputed? Mm. Why does immigration mm. exist? You know, British British history is embedded in imperial history. It's arguably the most significant global endeavor from the British in the entirety of global history, and it continues to impact yeah. us today. Which we will come on to. But and if, if, I, if I might, if if I might interject, I to kind of give a bit of kind of practicality to this. That question that you asked: Why is there a conflict between India and Pakistan? Why is the Kashmir disputed land? Mm -hmm. I can't answer that. Because I simply have not been taught it. I don't. I don't even know about. I, I was saying to you earlier that I didn't even know about partition until mm -hmm. I got to university. That's eighteen years of my life mm -hmm. where I didn't know about something as big as partition, mm -hmm. and it's something that you know. And because for for, for reference, both me and Karthik go to an incredibly uh, multicultural university. I yeah. think one of the most multicultural uh, universities in the country, mm -hmm. and for me to go into that environment and find out about that i felt very sort of i always felt a bit stupid going into it I thought to myself, oh my god this is this is such a big issue for people that i've had no clue about and i kind of had to like remind myself look this mm -hmm. is something that just wasn't taught to me and it's just something that wasn't in the books because yeah. of this kind of you know lack of wanting to almost own mm -hmm. up to its own uh, failures and i'm talking about britain as a kind of uh, as a as an identity there so mm -hmm. that that is an, that that in itself is an issue and hopefully something that we can uh, we can kind of part ways with because i think <laughs> it would be really interesting to talk about and i also think it would actually encourage a much more multicultural society and i think 100%. it would potentially 100%. it would potentially kind of put aside some of these you know mm -hmm. Sort of Brexit means Brexit, mm -hmm. EDL, sort of the, the types of people we were talking about about mm -hmm. last week. And mm -hmm. that would be brilliant because but, I really want to... Go on, yeah, you go. No, no, I completely agree with what you have to say. But I want to bring the point back to mm -hmm. if these histories of British empires happened, which it obviously did, why do we have figures like Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel? And I want to come on to an article that I've written for a brilliant journal that's going to uh, come out very, very soon called Unknotted. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to discuss sort of the lack of personal history education upon multi-generational immigrants like Rishi Sunak, like Priti Patel, who, because of the way the education system is stru structured in the UK, they are sort of 
given this idyllic representation of British history, um, which, you know, you discussed, you know, the idea of, you know, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Thing and all that you know, stuff, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, you know, where British, the British has fended off Nazis and communism and stood up to injustice as worldwide. It's completely economical with the truth when it comes to its personal history. And this is the impact that it has on people like Priti Patel, like Rishi Sunak, that have sort of completely forgotten their radical South Asian past that fought off the British, if you like, and seek independence, but are now sort of seeking to deport immigrants to Rwanda, having austerity policies. Mm. Etc. What do you think about that? What do you think about the impact on multi? Yeah, and I know earlier I said a I said a thing about sort of it's it's good that we're starting to get a more multicultural kind of representation within within Parliament. And I know mm -hmm. your thoughts of well, is it actually because the people that we've likely got who might be Prime Minister, mm -hmm. i.e. Rishi Sunak, mm -hmm. have got a completely skewed and negligent idea of representation and have got a completely skewed idea of how they wish to kind of portray their mm -hmm. own um their own history yeah, yeah. i completely i completely agree with that fact it's created a um an almost manipulated viewpoint mm -hmm. within your own within within your own community mm -hmm. so you as a, in 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 um in especially indian communities and yeah. Yeah, that's that's a problem, and it actually it owes back to your your argument that imperialism creates a factioned sort of uh, sort of society within communities. Yep, and it creates yep. and it creates these divisions, which mm -hmm. are are really because we're not. And I know a lot of people. Your average like libertarian, your average. You know, um, well, as I was about to say, your average Milton Freeman, average um, uh, John Stuart Mill's fan uh, fan will come up and say, yeah, well, everyone's individual. They can believe what they want and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, you know, we're not talking, we're not talking about individual. We're literally just talking about history here. And we're talking yeah. about, you know, owning up and being aware of your own history. Yes, mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak can believe and Priti Patel can believe what they wish to believe mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, what role imperialism had in their own community. Mm -hmm. But be honest with yourself. Be mm -hmm. honest with yourself. Because I, I, I genuinely believe that if you actually were to dig a little deeper with Rishi Sunak, he mm -hmm. might have a very different view to the one that he publicly yeah. um, puts out there. Probably. But that view is probably the only reason why he publicly has the views that he does is mm -hmm. because to win an election he's trying yeah. to and, and the same the, the same woke culture that they want to get rid of they constantly talk about this cultural war and this woke culture that they want to get rid of is the same woke culture that probably gave um india and pakistan independence that probably you know gave women the right to vote that gave women the right to, uh, to stand as an mp that gave women the right to become a prime minister so this is a woke culture that they want to fight off is exactly the culture that put them in the places that they are but but then, i want sorry go on yeah no but this is my this is my issue with it, it not just so i i have an issue with um their kind of war on woke rhetoric mm -hmm. but my issue actually transcends that particular that particular like war and woke rhetoric my issue is actually with this kind of 
factioned idea of of wokeism being like if you're woke you support social justice shouldn't we all be shouldn't we all be like you know yeah. <laughs> just, to me it seems to me funny. it seems boggling that mm-hmm. we have to create this subsection of society called you know wokeism and stuff mm-hmm. and this kind of subsection of people because surely everybody should be sort of wanting social justice and you know is wokeism does wokeism mean that you're sort of aware of your like uh, of your of your own history and uh, and honest with your own brutal history surely yeah. that should be where everybody should be you shouldn't have to be woke in order to do that you know and this that's my issue greater with sort of the idea of identity politics and we might sort of want to talk about that uh, on a further issue but yeah but I think you, you go ahead because we should we yeah. should neatly segue onto current political impacts of sort of not mm, understanding absolutely. personal histories um and the impacts of empire so i want to talk about the constituency harrow east which is actually the constituency of our british politics seminar leader tony mcnulty <laughs> so, um, and, and, I, and i've spoken about the politics of harrow east to tony before and i've done a lot of research into it because it's a very very interesting case study so harrow east is a constituency with 25 percent, where 25 percent of the voters are of indian origin and to mm show everyone how imperial impacts still play a role i want to discuss about current conservative mp bob blackman now bob blackman uh knew that his obviously he knows his constituency is 25 percent indian and the conservatives who support bob blackman in that constituency uh, continue to portray labor as anti-hindu and pro-muslim taking advantage of the colonial divide that was created by the british uh, and, you know, Bob Blackman, at, in 2010, no, sorry, 2015, decided to retweet uh, a Tommy Robinson tweet uh, citing Muslim violence against Hindus in Kashmir, whilst at the same time outlining that Labour was anti-Hindu for supporting Kashmiri self-determination. Hmm. Subsequently, Blackman's majority increased by 6,000 votes, and he was sworn into Parliament on the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Hindu holy book. Now, as a as a Hindu myself, I slightly find that offensive. The fact that he's mm. this is a Christian man. Uh, well, he might not be Christian, but this is a white man that is being sworn in on the Bhagavad Gita. He also, if you go onto his Twitter, and I checked this morning, he still has it. This picture of, uh, of him and Narendra Modi is still his background picture on Twitter. So he is clearly trying to use colonial divide and rule tactics to win an election. And what I, what I find really, what really angers me is that, especially on the 75th anniversary of independence, and this, is, this discussion of partition coming up, they divided us and then they courted our vote. And I find that really, really irritating. What do you think about mm. that? Yeah, so I'm just currently, because I just remembered about an article I read. I don't know if you know about the uh, article page Op India. No. Um, they, they, it's just sort of about, you know, uh, opinions of of just of the Indian community living in, in the UK and stuff like that. And uh, it was it was basically talking about Bob Blackman and he wanted to um, sort of, he wanted to open up this discussion about sort of, uh, the role of, I think, the Muslim community within uh, 
in the UK. I'm totally, I'm totally butchering what I, I can't quite remember what it basically said. But he, one one point that they put on there was that he he advocates himself as a friend of India. <laughs> and just just listening to kind of what what you what you said about mm-hmm. that it's 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 in it's interesting about that kind of how he's um he's kind of leveraged the the post-colonial discourse and this kind of like how you put it this sort of division within mm-hmm. that community in order to kind of uh further his own um his own uh, cause and I know he's been very uh, contentious with uh, mm-hmm. stuff to do with the 31st an- anniversary of the genocide of uh, Kashmiri and stuff like that. So yeah, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of stuff with that. But yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought up uh, uh, Bob Blackman because he's a very strange character in that kind of weird post-colonial discourse kind of thing. So okay, yeah, what I want to. I know we're running out of time, but I mm. really, really want to discuss Brexit and imperial Absolutely. nostalgia. So if you, if anyone's done any research on Brexit, they will know that the Brexit vote was taught across re- re- religious racial lines of immigration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And if you do any further research, you'll find that being in the EU probably gives us more control of immigration. So whilst it was thought on that narrative of make Britain, make Britain great again, take back control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is an incredibly imperial nostalgia type argument to make. It was completely untrue. And if you remember uh, Nigel Farage's uh, sort of poster showing non-white refugees on the Croatia-Slovenia border in 2015 with I Breaking remember, Point, yeah. it shows you how much of that imperial nostalgia still plays a role. The idea mm. of a global Britain still plays a role. And the idea that they were equals in the EU and the first among the equals in the Commonwealth shows why mm. they wanted to shift their support to the Commonwealth rather than the EU. So imperial nostalgia is embedded in Brexit and it's embedded in a type of racism, the unique brand of racism that Britain has, which the, uh, the idea that the Soul, the Soul Race report uh, came out very recently likes to purport that there's no institutional racism in the UK and that is <laughs> the idea that there's institutional racism is not borne out by the evidence well I'm just going to go into some statistics here since the Brexit mm-hmm. referendum racist hate crime has risen by 16% across Britain and beat at a 58% rise in the week following the vote and a couple weeks after the referendum you, you, were, you were telling me about a Polish gentleman that was beaten to death in Essex mm. uh, because he was attacked for speaking Polish in the street. And I know that Poland doesn't necessarily link in with the imperial history side of it, but it tells you that the unique brand of racism that sits in the in the UK, which uh, the Civil Race Report thinks we don't have, is still very much there. Yeah, and might I, might I add that, I, to be honest, you know, Brexit's been going on for ages. I think it started when I was like, when I, when I was a bloody teenager. That, it was that, probably, that, it um, actually probably started before we were even born. Yeah, probably started <laughs> before you were born. Uh, but when it kind of began propped up again into sort of like mainstream politics, I was just very disappointed that it was racialized because in my mind, like 
the discussion over the EU should have been, you know, well, you know, do we want to be part of that institution? Do we want to be, you know, do, do, do we agree with sort of like the kind of the structure of the EU? Do we want to kind of like divert our fu various funding there? That's what it should have been about. It shouldn't have been about this whole take control. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it should have been, not that I'm saying everything has to be economical. <clears throat> and I arguably you can racialize economic policy of course you of can, course but, you can. But, but it wasn't it wasn't but, a genuine yeah. discussion of our place in, in europe it was a discussion of we don't want these immigrants they're taking up our council houses kick them out and that's and that's also annoying because what it did and i believe that this is something that um well i know we spoke about it in uh in our course uh, uh for british politics and i think maybe it was pulled up in one of an article we had to read it might have been a robbie shilliam article but it mm -hmm. basically drowned out the voices the actual legitimate voices of people that had discontent for the eu but on quite sort of reasonable grounds i.e for instance mm -hmm. just basic opinion maybe saying that they don't like the bureaucracy of the eu they don't like how various different things function uh they might think that legislation has you know difficult roots when you're part of the eu and at least they are quite sensible you know whether you agree with them or not you know that's completely up to you but mm -hmm. they've not got this kind of like racialized imperial you know nationalist kind of as, rhetoric as as, as much as they were a part of European Empire, the thought, you know, Portugal, Spain, Germany, mm -hmm. Belgium was, in my opinion, one of the most horrific, considering it, 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 and I encourage all of our listeners to go and have a look at what Belgium did in the Congo, because it is horrific. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, what I sort of want to neatly wrap up the point too is absolutely yeah. education is a massive part of your personal history and global history and Britain's history. And once you start to properly educate yourself about British political history or British political past, then we can start to have a proper discussion of, you know, what we what we can do in the future. As as that child, one of the James's principal once spoke to, we need to educate ourselves about the history so that we don't make make the same mistakes again. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good way of, of segueing out and finishing up this conversation is that we need to be honest with our <laughs> history. We need to encourage. It's, it's that same thing. We said it last week. We need to encourage that open debate. We need I feel to like that should be the motto. Yeah. yeah. We need to encourage exactly. open debate. Not be, not be scared of those difficult subjects because... Mm -hmm. That is a part of our history. Germany have had to own up to their past and have had to have those difficult subjects. I don't so don't see why we can't. But yeah. And that Kartik. Is episode three. Is episode three. <laughs> yeah. Thanks that very much listening. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. Follow on Twitter at P underscore on underscore draft. Yeah. My name's been James Table. And my name's Carter Sony. <laughs> has it been james and, table before has it been? it's not it's not anymore but yeah no, but yeah thank you very much for joining us uh and we will see you next week for episode four see Sounds you good. later see you later bye bye, -bye.